Welcome to the Earning Edge Podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this week, Cam and I get to chat with a person that we've had circled for a long time to have on, Robert Rock, who has probably one of the most interesting stories in golf. He's a former driving range pro that earned a few starts on the European Tour, and he's turned that into a 20-year career where he's won multiple times. In fact, he's a defending champ at Abu Dhabi, which is kicking off the European Tour season this week, where he held off Tiger and Rory on a Sunday to win. And as fascinating as that story is, and Robert tells it in really good detail in this chat, but his position now within the game is equally unique. He's still playing a full schedule on the European Tour, but he's also got a stable of players that he's coaching. So the very players that he's competing against each week seek out his advice as coach. And it's a really interesting dynamic that Cam and I were eager to learn more about. He's also known for having one of the best golf swings in the world, and he does a really good job going into detail on his swing and how he built that largely on his own. So let's get into it. Before we dig in, as always, we want to thank one of our partners, Total Golf Trainer, and send you over to their website to pick up the limited edition TGT Pink 3.0 kit. You can use our promo code EARNYOUREDGE for a discount. And if you've listened to us for a while, you know that Total Golf Trainer has been a product that we've loved for a really long time. And it's been really fun to watch their continued growth. We are seeing their products more and more being used by the best players and coaches in the world. And it's equally as effective for recreational players. It can be used in full swing, putting, or short game, and can be customized to you and your swing and provide feedback on whatever technical cue you wish to monitor. It's one of those tools that lends itself to a lot of creativity. It's really versatile and can be used and worn in any number of ways uh, to provide really good feedback on whatever you're working on. So go check it out. But now enjoy episode 79 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Robert Rock. I want to start here at the most important part. You're probably best known for having the beautiful golf swing, really good ball striking, and now more and more for your coaching. And we're certainly going to get into all of that, but you're also well known for having impeccable style. And and so I want to start with any, um, for the audience and for us, for Cam and I really, can you give us the biggest fashion faux pas that you're seeing in golf at the moment here in 2020 and and maybe anything that we should be avoiding? Any of the rules of the Robert Rock style guide, I feel like would be a good start for us right here. Uh, no, no one to judge what people are wearing. <laughs> That's not but... true. See, there's too much mo- <laughs> modesty. You, know, you, you can judge me. How about the gator as a like a as a, as a fashion statement versus the yeah, function that... of, of COVID? No, nah, that that's, be... that's fine. That's yeah, fine. What should your COVID style be? <laughs> well, I think I, I try and look as less golfy as possible. I don't want to be obviously on my way to play golf, just in case you have to do something else. So we, we we should tell everyone to leave their short sleeve mock shirts at home. They can leave those in the closet. We're going to avoid yeah. those, right? Okay, you can good. leave your you can leave your white belt on your white trousers. And you can leave <laughs> and you can leave them indoors. Maybe wear them once once a month, right? Yeah. Okay. Good rule. That's all I was looking for first yeah. for starting okay. point there. I've got something to add there, Robert. Just as coaches, we're charged with inspiring people. And I want to let you know that you inspired Corey to go out last night and get a haircut, especially yeah, for this podcast. <laughs> so he could represent like you That's represent. Right. So That's right. got a fresh, fresh cut Brilliant. to the barnet right now. Well, I'm trying to look I've had mine done today and I've just got out of the shower and I actually forgot about what time it was. So this is, yeah. I'm not well, fully. It's 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 a bit annoying to know that it looks like that right out of the shower. Right? <laughs> it required some some grooming. Normally, I am. This is my kit, right? Bit of um, bit of that. Bit of nice. hair powder. So, so for the audience, we're getting a look at the products that yeah, go on right now. Yeah, the secret products. <laughs> Man, I can't believe we're yeah, getting into all this right off the bat. We're getting into bit the good of, stuff right away. I think a bit of styling paste. I think for That's the females it. in the audience, they might have liked to have started the podcast about 20 minutes earlier than if you, t- if you say you're in the shower. <laughs> Stop it. Hey, mate, we got to congratulate you on not only Lee Westwood, but specifically Lee Westwood's season and the, the, the victory in the weight race to Dubai, but your entire entourage of, or stable of players um, and the success that they've had. And I think that the entire golf world probably breathed a sigh of relief when Lee passed Patrick Reed to win the race to, uh, race to Dubai, don't you think? Well, Lee's just a great player, isn't he? He's been Europe's best for a long time, right? I, I can't claim any real. I might have helped a little bit at the start of the year when he won in Abu Dhabi, but 
I guess you both know my my pal Liam that's been yeah. on the road with me coaching as well, right? He He's done most of the work with Lee over the past few weeks while Lee's been in America. I've been over here playing. Um, uh, Liam was there in the, who was it, the Honda and the Masters. And then actually I texted Lee at the start of the race of the bye week and he was struggling. He got a bad back and we normally play practice rounds and he didn't, he, he didn't want to play practice rounds. He was struggling that bad. And then Liam walked a few holes with him. I think it was late Wednesday when the physios and the pills had started to kick in for him and he felt like he was ready to get going. And there you go. He came second and won the whole thing. So that's pretty amazing, really. I mean, I, I barely saw him that week, so I can't claim any credit for that. Yeah, well, well there's there's plenty of modesty and humility in that answer. And I, I love giving credit to the team. And we're going to get into kind of how you put that that team together and how you work with them. But usually we, we like to start these conversations at just understanding what the origin story looked like, like your early involvement in golf. And it's fun doing the research because you, you find out that there's a lot of really unique stories. And, and yours is one where you weren't necessarily this budding prodigy, like similar to a lot of these conversations that we have. And in fact, yeah. you, you were going through PGA training, uh, you yeah. were teaching at a local club, and suddenly you find your way on the European tour. So that mm-hmm. unique origin story leads you to this unique place that you're in now where not only are you playing on the European tour, but you're teaching all, the, all those players. So I think as a starting point, can we just start with the story of how you made that leap from a teaching pro in the UK to the European tour? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I look back on and think I prepared really well, but I was very, very lucky as well. Things fell into line at the right time. I guess through preparing properly, I was I was playing as good as I thought I could at the time. When, when I look back now, it, it wasn't really very complete a game. Um, I drove it really, really well when I was a young pro. Being at a driving range, working at a driving range all day, I tended to just hit a lot of drivers, right? And then I, and maybe maybe if I was working on my swing, I would hit some five irons to this green that was conveniently located at five iron length on the on the range, right? I would hit buckets of balls at that. But pitching and chipping and putting were a frustration right from probably getting close to a scratch handicap. So when I was a club pro, I would play PGA events, mostly pro-ams. I had some good bosses that made decent money playing pro-ams and kind of followed their lead and wanted to make wanted making my, my days playing productive so i'd be coaching making a little bit of money and then when i went playing my, my bosses would say well make sure if you're having a day off coaching you better make sure you come back with some money otherwise you've blown all your money from the previous day entering the tournament i thought yeah he's, he's right here and i'm i've got to got to make sure i come away with something so i learned how to just win a few hundred pounds here or there in these programs and and then after probably a couple of years of playing that i realized that if you won the PGA's regional order of merit, which were based on three or four, I think they're probably two or maybe three round tournaments, you got invites into tour events that came to your region. Now, back in that time, it was 2002 and three, we had events at the belt. It's been similar to this year. This year has been, uh, been able to sort of relive the sort of schedule that we used to play. And we used to play events at the Belfry, the Forest of Arden and in Wales, and one of the main ones being the PGA Championship was at Wentworth. So one year, 2002, I came third in our region and I got to play at the Belfry and the Forest of Arden for my two first ever tour events. I'd entered the qualifying school in 2000 but fa- failed miserably. I failed at stage one and thought, at that point, I thought, oh, that's it, I'm, I'm just not good enough for this, so I'll just settle into club pro life and, and try and make some money. But, but I got these starts penciled in and I... I prepared as much as I could. They were the courses were really close to me. I mean, I live probably forty minutes from both of them, so I played them a lot. I even rehearsed different routes to drive there if the traffic was bad, and I didn't want to mess up any any opportunity I had. And the very first one was at the Belfry, and I played played really good. And I faced. I was in the middle of the ninth fairway, being my last hole on Friday. I've hit the fairway, and I've got a pitching wedge into the green, and I just need to par the hole to make the cut. And I dumped it in the front bunker, it plugged against the face, splashed it out, made double, went home. Initially miserable, but then I thought, I'm not far off here, right? I can do that. I can make a cut in a European tour event. I know that now. I didn't didn't know really what would happen after that. So 
my goal was to win the Order of Merit for the next year, make sure I got those two events again, and I and to get Wentworth being a massive event for us. And I did that, and I got to play in them. And then the first one was the Belfry, and I came 21st. Doubled the last hole to, to do that. But, and back in those days, if you top 10 you would get the following week. So I missed out on that, and I was raging at that. But I'd finished 20, I think, no, it was 23rd, sorry. It was 23rd I finished. And I won £20,000, and that was my biggest check by a mile. I mean, it'd be probably my last five five years playing. So I got all that in one week, and then I went to Wentworth the following week and, and featured, and it was on BBC, and I was leading at one point on the Friday and the Saturday. Again, it just totally took me by surprise. I, I hit a, a nice little patch where I was just driving it so well that any course that I was playing was feeling that I could get it round under par. And I finished that one badly, but finished 21st. One, I guess that would have been another 20, 30, 30 grand. And then Chubby Chandler kindly gave me an invite to the British Masters at the Forest of Arden. I came fourth. I think I shot five under last round and finished fourth. I won 100,000 there, and that was enough. By the time the end of the season had passed, I just kept my card with a couple of places to, to spare. But So through through qualifying for three or four events and then playing my way into a couple of others and I got a few more invites where I, I actually went to these events and missed the cut but uh, yeah through partial season I got my card and then that was it That's an unbelievable story to turn those starts into what's become this 20 year career on the European tour. And, and it's mental when you look, when I look back, I think it's I crazy. Can't, I'm so lucky. Yeah. My month of playing, I didn't shoot any score better than five under. But you didn't shoot any score worse than what, which is the other side of um, being an excellent player, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I think my first, some of the invites I took to, I could, I wasn't obviously couldn't be picky and choosy about which tournaments I got into, but, I went to play in Switzerland, which um, was at altitude, and I'd never, never played that for before. I forget what I scored, what I, what I scored, but uh, I missed the cut comfortably there. I didn't know mm-hmm. what I was doing, and probably it was, same, it was probably to any time that year I I went outside of the UK. I didn't know what I was doing, but luckily for a month I played really good, and I got that money on the board. and And the, the end of the year was frustrating because it was back in the day where there wasn't all these projected rankings, right? So I had a long list of names that were playing the final event and I wasn't playing. And I'd worked out where they needed to finish and what score they were on current. I was doing it every day and it was constantly like pressing refresh on the, the screen when it would just take forever to do. And, and <laughs> that last weekend was torture because um, it would be make or break for me. I, I would either go from being a club pro, having full status on the European tour to... Folding shirts and answering the phone. Back, yeah, back to the job. Yeah, back right. to the job. And and what that one weekend really from things going my way with other players not really doing what they needed to, and me just being just watching, being lucky. Um, the following year, I played a full season. I played terrible the following season, right? And, and <laughs> I played. I think I played thirty events, and my best finish was the whole season was twenty first in Ireland, actually. Yeah. But I lost my card, but only by a tiny little bit, and managed to keep states and then play my way back through but yeah. that first yeah. full year was an eye-opener because that was traveling the world and i hadn't done that right uh, the learning curve that comes with yeah. uh, traveling the world and playing that many competitive uh, events week in week out i want to go back yeah. you just said something that was so intriguing when you were preparing for that first quote-unquote european start of the yeah. belfry the extent to which you described what you rehearsed and trying different routes to navigate traffic to get to the golf yeah. course I can only imagine in your mind the scale or magnitude that you were building up that event in your mind. And I mean, in your coaching, you probably talk to it a lot. I know we talk to it with our youth players and even our touring professionals that are trying to reach the highest of levels. How the lessons that you learned, I guess, is the question I'm I'm getting around to of how, how to minimize the a stage yet prepare appropriately because it would be easy to think that the extent of rehearsal could inflate or conflate the event that you're playing in in your mind so much that it becomes debilitating it makes it hard yeah. for you to play to the best of your ability because you've 
ruminated. You've thought about it so much. So um, is that something you talk about with the players that you coach and, um, and what lessons did you learn out of that? Well, that was purely me being me being me. And I know when I used to play all the individual pro-am competitions before that, I couldn't play if I was, if I was late, right? If I, and late for me is, is not really being late, but if I wasn't there with ample time just to settle down after a, a long or stressful drive, I didn't really like driving that much. And I still don't really, Mm -hmm. but the panic of maybe being stuck in traffic or rushing about before I play, I found it really difficult to then settle down if I didn't have the right sort of amount of time. So I made, that was me making sure that I'd have a backup plan. So I didn't start panicking. I would set off well early. So I'd, I'd be at a lot of the time in my early, early days as a pro, I'd be at the course probably two and a half hours before my tea time, maybe more, right? Just through, I'd wake up without an alarm. It was just all like, all of the panic of being late. Uh, and I, I, I'm still like it. I'm like it for flights and everything. Um, <laughs> and people are different, aren't they? Some people can, can cut it right down to the last, last few minutes of a flight or, or for or preparation. <laughs> and, yeah, and it not bother them. They don't seem to be frustrated by it. And it was just sure, definitely something that I couldn't, couldn't do. So I think learning about yourself is in, important in that regard, what you yeah. can handle. No doubt. Yeah. Building on that a little bit and just kind of the psychology, I, I, I find myself when I'm at a European tour event, I see you out there. I wonder how much you're playing psychologist just because I envy the position that you have as a coach that I don't know that anybody else that, that Cam or I come across as a coach can say that they've experienced, you know, holding off Rory and Tiger on a Sunday, like, like you did at Abu Dhabi and you've lived it in a way that, that very few of us have. So that comes with this level, I'm assuming of a lot of trust and receptiveness from your players when they are trying to figure out ways to deal with pressure. So in that case that you're, is that a conversation that you have often? Are there strategies that you have used to cope with stress in those those situations that you're actively trying to to pass along to, especially the younger players that you're working with? Yeah. yeah I mean, the younger players quite often ask what it was like playing with Tiger because it's such a such an actual honor to have done it. All your days as a young golf pro, for me anyway, if you meet somebody new in golf, they go, oh, have you played, have you played the Masters? Have you played with Tiger Woods? Right. And it seemed to be the question I used to get asked all the time. And it'd be no and no. And then eventually I got to say that, yeah, I did, I did play with Tiger Woods. And from my, my beginnings as a driving range club pro, I mean, that's ridiculous. I can remember being at, being at the bar, in the bar of the clubhouse, having a few beers with a few of the members, watching Tiger win the Masters on TV, thinking, Jesus, right? <laughs> I'm here smashed at the bar. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then to, to think, like, I can look back now and say that I've actually played with him is just mind-boggling for me. In doing the research and thinking of you as a coach, like I had this conversation with Cam earlier, I mean, it's a bit annoying when I start to think about the advantages that you have on us with the experiences that you have, right? That not only well, are you this player experiencing this but, thing, but you're a coach too. On the course that day is massive for me. The amount of times I can have chats with the fellas after a frustrating day, and I know what they're going to say before before we start really getting into it. I can say, look, just forget about hole six or whatever, that flag and that wind. It was an absolute nightmare. I battled that. I just wanted to get through it. I didn't care whether I did this or that. And and it, you can, fortunately, I can knock a few things in the head before they fester into a two-hour session on the range. I think a lot of the the chats that we have after after rounds are about situations on the course or shots that they felt really uncomfortable over for one reason or another, and and it's so nice to be able to just go, yeah, I, I had to back off that a few times or change my plan or I just did it sideways there as well because I just couldn't see anything, and to be able to go through that with some of your players is quite nice. It makes them think that right, it's not just my game falling apart on that particular hole. There's loads of other players facing the same fear over whether it's a wind and a wind and a shot that you're trying to hit that's just not not fitting for you and finding a, a better way around that that that's, that's been quite quite useful and, and that, I suppose that is my advantage is that I'm out there seeing exactly the same shots that they're facing and having to do them and and, and you either have something constructive to say because you actually managed to play that shot well yourself or you can understand the 
the fear and, and problems that they might have had with it. As these conversations typically go, we'll weave in and out of different kind of subject matter, in and out of your playing career and your coaching career. And you mentioned the word advantage, an advantage of being a player talking to those great players that you coach. But I would consider an advantage also was the way you learned the game yourself, not coming from means and essentially having to um, kind of teach yourself. So can you express how much of an advantage you feel like that is? And then maybe as a follow-up to that, um, describe when you started learning more and more about coaching and about the swing of the mentors that you did ultimately lean on like Mac O'Grady. Yeah. Yeah. I think ideally I would have been a lot better golfer starting off. Right. And maybe the, the struggles that I have had might not have even been there, but when you start from a, a lower point and you're trying to build your, just build your career up and actually cement your place on the European tour. So you actually feel like you are a pro golfer and you deserve to be on this particular tour those hard first few years where I was really learning my my trade of how to play four rounds, how to travel, how to learn new shots, how to make cuts when you're playing crap, how to make cuts when you when you feel like you've actually got nothing. I can remember many, many times a game falling apart on me. And when my Tita Green game, which wasn't amazing at, at the start of my career at all, um, but I could drive the ball well. But when that went and I had to find a way of making a cut, that was really tough when you're not knowing quite what way you're going to send it off the tee, but you've got to try and find a way of making a birdie on the last hole, which might be a par five, or you've got to par the last hole just to make the cut, but you don't like your chipping and you're not sure you can get it in from four foot, right? <laughs> but you still do it, right? Somehow you manage to find the ball off the tee, get it somewhere near the green, fudge your chip on or hold the putt that you need to do. Those battles for yourself and for me really made the days when I was trying to achieve something good, like my first win or the day when I'm playing with Tiger, they made those days miles better and, and easier. Because when you're playing at that point in a tournament, you're actually playing well and you're confident. And you think, well, right. I, I used to be able to make a four on, on holes like this when I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So what have been the, the mindset shifts in those? I mean, as, as you've gone along and, and gained more experience being in that situation, you know, some of that is maybe improving short game and putting, which I know yeah. you've done, you've mentioned recently, but some of that's got to be just mindset and how you're yeah. kind of perceiving those situations. How's that changed over the last 20 years? I think because you build up some evidence to suggest that even though I'm feeling really unsure about everything, I can, I can do it, right? I can knuckle down over these last few holes and I can make a four-foot putt when I really don't know. Well, I'm not 100% confident, but I can go through the process that I would practice and just rely on it and, and expect when I really needed to, to just get that little bit more out of myself when, when I feel like things are crumbling around me. But I can actually, I've got some evidence to say that I can do it when I'm feeling like that. And you close things up and, and that actually starts to make you feel better about yourself as a golfer, thinking that, well, even if it does fall apart, I've got a little bit of a strategy to finish the job off. So the early days where I really struggled have, have helped me no end. Now, I don't see, I don't often face anything now that really, really bothers me too much. Go back and pull on the thread of uh, how you got better as a coach or how even you view getting better as a coach even these days and maybe the, um, the influence that you can have on Liam and Ben to improve their, their coaching and instruction abilities. I've always looked after my own game myself pretty much. I had small, small stints where I worked with Mac O'Grady and Matt Belsham and then when I was a young, young golfer, the, the pros or assistant pros would give me a little bit of coaching. But because I was trying to learn the game myself I didn't have never really had regular lessons couldn't really afford them at the start so it was it was about gathering as much information as I could in the in the 80s and the 90s and and I had mountains and mountains of golf magazines now I look now and some of the magazines that I see now I probably <laughs> I probably would have advised a younger myself to not have bothered and, exactly. and just picked two a few books here and there and, and maybe saved up to go and speak to somebody a little bit better. But I tried to gather everything like you, I guess like the, the internet in a way now I've got, I had these mountains of golf magazines that I used to sift through and they were from tons of different coaches, but it, it really gave me a, I think a, a wide interest in technique at the start, but that was, that wasn't 
a great thing for my own game because I had all these different ideas and views and nothing seemed to tally up in my own head as to, right, this is how I want to swing. I would look at Faldo, who was playing amazing. I think, yeah, that looks fantastic. I want to swing like that. But then I look at some other players that were achieving great things at similar times and they were different. And I couldn't find any real common ground that made me form a proper model in my head of what I wanted to do. And I was still like that right up to even before I got my card. I had a couple of key things in my swing that I didn't like. My left arm used to bend quite a lot coming down. I used to really feel properly in the way of myself as I started my downswing. My swing never felt like a swing. I would watch some really nice players. I could just see how the club just seemed to swing around them easy in a nice smooth circle. And I thought, yeah, I want mine to, I want mine to feel like that. And it never did. It felt like a good backswing and then a bit of a, some sort of a, a dip and a lunge and a collapse and, and then just found myself fighting through impact on nearly every shot. And I hated the feel of it. And I thought, I've, and that was something that maybe if I look back now, I wish I could have tackled that with what I know now. And I would probably have managed to sort that out a lot earlier. But that used to frustrate me. And that, used, that was the, the forefront of my mind is I've got to get rid of this if I'm going to feel like a proper golfer. And it was probably wrong, but that was really what I wanted to do. So I would just jump around between swing thoughts and swing ideas all the time, even through that period where I say I played well for a month and got my card. That was just a random swing thought that I had. That I can I can remember all of it now. I was I would set up with sort of relatively high hands, take it back in my normal way to the top, and then I tried to cut the left wrist as much as I could as I started the downswing. And then just hit it as hard as I could, right? And that lasted a month. <laughs> with, with great success, <laughs> that grab right. bag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then I can remember my, my caddy at the time telling me when we got somewhere else, I'd obviously started cupping the wrist much earlier than on the way down, right? And he's, God, mate, you're so open at the top now. This is <laughs> So that had its shelf life. And I thought I, thought I was going to keep swinging like that for ages. But I was still, I was still guessing at that point. And then... The bit that made me kind of find a bit of direction was when I did work with Matt Belsham and Matt suggested I go on a course with Mac and I went on a week's course with Mac O'Grady and and I found the way that he analysed each particular swing was what I was after. It was logical, it worked and I think that's really what I was searching for through all the the to and and fro from all the different swings I was looking at trying to find some common ground could have probably pieced that together if I'd have if I'd have really, really thought deeper about it. But the way Mac showed me to do it was like, yeah, that's a good way to start picking these swings apart. And from that, I started to then form an opinion. And really the the swing I had in my in my head about what I wanted my swing to look like started to become a lot clearer. Plus Mac's genius in demonstrating right-handed and left-handed. I went to that course with this bent left arm problem still in at the forefront of my mind and put that to him and he says yeah I had that problem when I switched to left-handed and I fixed it doing this and he showed me and I couldn't even do it really in a full-bloody practice swing reliably he showed me and the first swing we filmed my left arm was just bolt straight and I couldn't believe it right I was so excited by that I thought right this guy's a genius I'm <laughs> running now. instant credibility even credibly before that <laughs> Well, it was, yeah, it was just brilliant. And, and maybe that wasn't the best thing I got out of that week. The best thing I got was learning how to compare swings. I don't do it like that so much anymore, but it's led me down my own little route, I think. And it was a, it was a brilliant, brilliant starting point. Yeah. And just the you- best seven days I've spent in golf, I would say, and value for money like you can't believe here at Altus, we are proud partners of Tylus, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Tylus T Series. The engineering ingenuity that has made Tylus the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Tylus T Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. 
I'm glad that you got to do the golf swing a little bit because, you know, Cam and I kind of take pride in the amount of research we'll do for each of these chats that we have. You know, we try to yeah. go do a bunch of, read all the articles we can. And last night in prep, um, I find myself, I'm like an hour and a half down the Robert, Re- Robert rock swing porn YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Just and like, I look, I like, I have, I've have no research done. Right. But I've, I have a, a, a great, I've renewed my sense of swing envy from watching all the swings of, of yours. And you're known for that incredible golf swing that, that to me, I would describe it. It's very clean. It's efficient. Are there two or three ingredients in your swing now that, that you've prioritized and that you kind of, you monitor throughout the year and that, that consistently time over time, here are the things that I'm paying attention to, as you said, that you're not chasing a list of swing thoughts that have a shelf life, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what I've ended up settling on being content that I've been, been able to put certain parts of the swing together relatively easily like my backswing has always come to me relative, relatively simply whether i've adopted a uh, various different takeaway options right i've still managed to find more often than not a decent position at the top and being able to feel that and i used to rehearse that just so many times in front of a, a mirror or a window when i was younger um because you didn't didn't have the options of filming on your phone right so the only things you could actually monitor yourself would be your setup your grip maybe your takeaway by doing that slowly but you could just you could do your your backswing in a window or a mirror and and learn the feeling of that so i I rehearsed that so many times um at home so that became something that whether i did more of a wrist hinge takeaway to p2 or whether i took it nice and wide didn't really make much difference to me now and i still i don't notice much difference whether i do one or the other now i could switch switch between either and not really see much difference in in my golf but i've settled on the the wider version anyways put it that way but my key element was always the start of my downswing it still is i'm getting closer to having it under control and at 43 years old i mean <laughs> you hope, you would hope wouldn't you as a as a 20 or 30 year old you would i think that really was what i was after was something that would last me a long time that that i would be able to stick with a swing thought that that I could play with 10 years or more without really having too much of a swing thought, but that, that never really happened for me. It was, it was hard work. So now I would say I look at my start, my downswing. A lot of people like the way that I tend to shallow the club coming down. I hate it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hate it. One of the things that has bothered me, I don't like to feel that I associate some of that with some of my old problems in my downswing where I used to, I can remember as a, 20 year old assistant pro hitting it a long way and as soon as i started down i knew the ball was going a million miles to the right and there was nothing i could do to save it and Mm -hmm. i want a lot of the time i would prefer to have missed the ball because i knew it was three off the tee right if i missed Mm -hmm. it it was two right and that bothered me so much i used to and i never knew when it was coming but i knew it was part of part of the way my swing was that if i just got the timing right timing wrong and i started down in it and got this feeling the ball was just going sideways so my downswing has always bothered me and now i monitor it so i mean that shot's thankfully long gone and i hit it left instead now how did you solve that um or get through that period of where right three after two to the right was really in play yeah this was um again before video so it was a i think a matter of cancelling things down just an actual feeling about the the impact and it felt like the club face was either i didn't know for certain but it either felt like it was coming a long way from the inside or Mm -hmm. it was a long way open i couldn't prove one or the other but the first time that i got rid of that my whole of my downswing was all about getting the club head to actually catch up properly and it felt like i was probably throwing it throwing it from the top I, i wouldn't have been but it and i felt like i was straightening my right arm early just trying to get the club back to the ball right. a little quicker. I used to lose height and I used to slide forwards and my left arm used to bend and the club used to fall back, right? It was a it was a mixture of things that got the club coming in. I would imagine it was, looking back, it was probably steep, hit down too much, open, and from the inside. I've got a deeper question maybe to ask regarding philosophies as a coach or as an instructor. And it comes out of reading a lot about maybe your philosophies or beliefs as a coach. And one of those uh, hard and fast beliefs, I think, 
is one that centered around efficiency in reducing extraneous motion, I think is what I read. And then a second piece, a quote that is attributed to you is something where you go aesthetics were not that important to you. A really good swing tends to look look nice, but it doesn't have to. If you're careful and organize the bits that matter, can you, you can make just about anything work. So can you try and create for our listeners and for me, since I'm the one asking the questions, some sort of clarity around those two concepts that don't seem to fit together. Aesthetics meaning looking clean, efficiency meaning looking clean, but yet um, a tolerance to allow, I guess, idiosyncrasy to flourish if it matches up. I didn't want any unnecessary movement in my swing that I felt like was pointless. And I guess when I said that, I'm probably talking things like maybe the club veering too much off a a simple path going back and having it look like you're looping back one way or another to find the straight line, having too much loss or gaining of height during a swing or changing of posture or shifting one way or another. I liked to think that if it was going to be a golf swing machine and not meaning the book, but mm-hmm. like, you know, something practically built to hit a ball, right. a lot of the things would be fixed and just pivoting around simple points. And mm-hmm. that made sense to me. And I thought that when you put those things simply together and you get a nice and you have got a nice straight path at the bottom and, and, and there isn't too much shift one way or another, it does tend to look quite simple. Rhythm seems to come easier to that, I think, when there aren't too many changing lines. But now, when I see somebody that has quite a nice backswing, but maybe it's a little bit off, but then they have, they have a lovely start down that corrects a few things and pulls it back into line, I like to, knowing how much I've tried to put my downswing in order and how difficult I found that, if I see somebody that finds that that's first move from the top of the top of the backswing and they find that first move easy from maybe a slightly iffy backswing i'd like to leave that alone right so i think that that's the hard bit mate you can do that right i can put you a nice backswing <laughs> together at the point you want but it's irrelevant right if it messes up with that little move you've got starting down or or we take away from the details here this not important so the backswing even though i spent most of my early years piecing together a nice backswing i don't i don't see it as as important if you can't find that slot and you struggle to find that slot coming down i mean that's that's the be all and end all and i don't necessarily think that having a perfect backswing does that for you and that's probably a lot of the wisdom that we share with the players that we get to advise at any level it's the wisdom of i've tried these things and yeah. some of them are, some of them are non-starters some of them are, uh, are, are dark holes that you'll go down and you'll never come back from yeah. and some of them do actually hold hold water some of them are yeah. of value it's a hard thing for mm. the average golfer out there to kind of figure through just as much as it is a hard thing for the touring professionals to to work through and one of the questions i wanted to ask you is among all the things that you kind of ward or advise players against doing, that's probably yeah. one of them, right? Is there any others that come to mind? The biggest mistakes for, are you talking tour players or? Yeah, tour players, yeah. The mistakes they yeah. make, they think they, they, they have a weakness when actually what they're yeah. doing may be a strength in technique. I wouldn't advise hardly anyone to do what I've, what I've done. I enjoyed doing it, mm-hmm. right? I loved, I loved doing it, but was it the best thing for me? If I'd have been more competitive, would I have done it? Probably not. Would I advise a super competitive person to do it? No chance. It takes way too long. It's really hard, right? And you can you can spend your time way more wisely working on other things that are going to get you around the course better, right? And I mean, some of the things I've done in my swing, I look back and think, actually, they're pointless. I achieved them because I wanted, well, as far as scoring is concerned, right? I felt really good that I actually achieve them because I set them out as little things that I wanted to do in my swing and I wanted to work out why and I wanted to work out what I needed to do to do that and I would because I'm always working on my my own doing it I'd set myself this little challenge of of fixing such a position and if I couldn't do it it would frustrate the hell out of me and I would be there all day every day until I actually worked out what it was and I spent years doing that wasting years really when I should have been should have been working on my chipping my pitching my putting my course strategy almost everything else right (laughs) (laughs) yeah you you bring up the scoring in the short game there yeah and i assume that when people first hear that 
you're coaching the players that you're trying hard to beat week in and week out, that's kind of hard for them to get their heads around at first. Like you're helping these yeah. guys, but you're trying to beat them. But I assume, and I'm kind of leading you here as you start about the scoring, I assume that some of that has been mutually beneficial. I assume that being around players that do other things great, like looking at your stable, I know that there are some really good short games in that stable of players that that you're coaching. Can you speak to how that's benefited you and maybe even kind of cross beneficial to the other players that you coach as well? I don't think I would have learned how to chip or pitch had I not started coaching tour pros. If I'd have been left on my own devices to work out how to do it, I probably didn't like it enough to find it out. I didn't, it wasn't sexy I didn't, enough, was it? <laughs> no, I didn't enjoy doing it, right? I didn't enjoy doing it. I, I don't know why, but it never really captured my imagination. And it is imagination that does solve a lot of it, but it never really did until I started watching really great players do it up close and seeing, seeing what they could do. Now, when you're watching from a little further afar, when you're not really inside their little group when they're practicing or warming up or they don't maybe open up quite as much to other competitors maybe but I certainly found some inspiration there to think well I can can actually start to see how this is done now and I want to be able to do that I can remember Thomas trying to help me in Hong Kong it must be 10 years ago right I was struggling with a little little short short short-sided chip shot that I couldn't play I avoided it most of the time I've never really had duffs with chipping right but there were certain shots I couldn't play he tried to help me but as we know you get a limited amount of time on a Monday Tuesday or Wednesday we're actually trying to help somebody do something significant right and this was talking we're talking a half hour chipping lesson right off Thomas Bjorn in Hong Kong on weird grass right I thought I was doing it well I was attempting to do what he was suggesting but I didn't go through what I would normally do where I would take this info take it home video it make sure I'm actually doing what the guys told me to do right I just did your normal punter version I feel like I'm doing it it's not working right and that was that was was the end of my chipping lesson off one of the best chippers ever right I just thought uh, I just want interested and then (laughs) fast forward fast forward 10 years right now I'm watching him and he's taking the piss out of my chipping and and he's being more brutal because we're actually working together. And he's telling me how it is, saying, no, you, it's shit. You're not doing it, right? what? And eventually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? And eventually, I, I, I think, well, actually, I'm going to do it now just because he's pissed me off. And it made me work harder on it. And it, Thomas plays this lovely little spinning chip shot with his 60-degree uh, wedge. He, he plays it a lot, right? And just lays the face open, but the ball flies just on nice medium sort of low trajectory, loads of spin, pitches and stops, and he can just do that all day. Uh, it is magic to watch. And I thought, I want to be able to do that because that's a pretty cool shot. So I just practiced that practiced that shot only over and over and over and over until I could do some sort of version of it. And it was a fun shot to quite, to play. And from that, indirectly, I suppose maybe this is Thomas's little bit of genius in putting me in the right shot first, but the confidence to play all the other shots just seemed to flow a lot easier. Once you can do that, that one particular shot that I didn't like, once I found a way to do that, I, I got a, a greater interest for chipping and pitching. Yeah, it's fascinating what you say right there. 11 years ago, the value proposition for change wasn't high enough, maybe. There wasn't right. a level of interest. And then uh, given... Well, swing as well, right? So that was still, that's got to happen first. Don't worry yeah. about chipping, right? You <laughs> not part of god that comes later right even even putting did what putting did did bother me because i knew that was unavoidable but i thought if i hit the ball well enough i'm only gonna have one one chip around right i can i can fudge that i'm not double hitting it i'll get it on but i want to do the other things first it wasn't a priority enough on the list of many things that i'm curious about how you navigate playing at the same time that you're teaching is just kind of scoreboard watching. Like Cameron and I have a bit of a tortured, I think every coach has a bit of a tortured relationship with leaderboards. You know, I've, I've made the mistake plenty of times on a busy coaching day, checking a leaderboard and it can be a source of distraction and stress. And then I think about you being on the golf course in that tournament and looking at a leaderboard and either seeing a player of yours do really well or even having a rough go. Like, how do you navigate that experience of, of how a coach will just live the ups and downs for each of the player while you're you're in the middle and the heat of the battle yourself? 
you want to try playing with one of the guys you're trying to help. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brutal. <laughs> that is a night. Fortunately, it's only happened a few times so far, and it's not gone too badly. The what ifs on on those days, right? You just praying the guy's gonna have a just a reasonable day, so he just doesn't give you the stare, you know. Like, <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but watching the leaderboards is good, right? Because it's only only good stuff on leaderboards. So you're seeing if one of your players appears on there, you think, yeah, good on you, mate. I'm not super competitive, right? I mean, being silly playing a, a sport that that is the main part of it, but. I'm not that competitive. I like to play the way I want to play. And if I play well and I shoot a decent score, I'm happy, right? I don't look at somebody else and just think, I've got to beat them. I just don't. Wish I did. I wish I did because it would probably have driven me on a bit more. But it just, I've never been, I wasn't that competitive as a kid. Probably one of the reasons I took golf in the first place, just to be able to play it on your own at your own pace, learn it at your own rate. Never really competed directly against people as such growing the game is a phrase that we hear talked about a lot in golf and honestly there's probably far more talk than there is real action put towards it but we wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your grow the game initiative in terms of like the rubber rock junior golf tour and maybe understand the impetus behind it and um direct some attention that way it's something that i half expected some of the higher ranked english players to have done in truth but it never really happened Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, guys. <laughs> yeah, right. I, it was, the, I thought, well, we started, me and Natalie is a, a lady golf pro. She's Danny Willits, caddy, Sam, his sister, Natalie, she runs it for me. She approached me four years ago to do one event at her club that she worked at. And I said, yeah, of course, yeah, I'd love to, right? So we did one tournament. We got 40 kids, not a massive turnout, but okay. And on that day, all the parents um, just asked if we could do more. Can we do another one? Can we do another one? And now we're four years down the line. We've got 26 events lined up for next year. We managed mm-hmm. to get, we managed to get. Uh, I think we got 16 events done this year after the lockdown, which was, which was great. But yeah, we've got 26 lined up for next year. We've managed to tick a few offers as major events. We've got some really, really great courses. I'm trying to get some of the venues that we go to on the tour to to pick up the idea and host an event the following year so the kids can actually play tournament courses and we've got hillside which hosted the british masters that's they've they've done that for us and the forest of arden where we played a few months ago they're doing it next year so and we just want to keep playing good courses to give the kids a chance to play the ones that they see on the TV. Right. But the, the original idea for me about the tour was because I was a driving range pro and I used to, used to do the junior coaching on Saturday morning, a lot of the times hung over, right? But, <laughs> but we did that. We did that for years. Right. And it was, it was actually quite hard work. We would have a lot of kids turn up. There'd be two in a bay, all the range would be full and we'd do it from, uh, half nine through till about, I think it was half 12 we finished. Maybe it might even have been half past one. Anyway, it was a full, full morning of nonstop junior coaching, but purely on a driving range. Then I went off playing, playing the tour for a number of years and still used to go back to that place to practice. And, and then I found, started to find that the kids would, they were just seeing that their involvement in golf was that Saturday morning or whatever day it was that session on the driving range was them feeling like they were a golfer. Mm -hmm. They weren't members of courses. They weren't playing on courses at the weekend. They played golf, right? They thought they played golf, but it was just driving range based and they hadn't made the transition to courses. And that bothered me a little bit. So I thought what we, that's always been happening at this driving range, right? We're losing kids probably to other sports eventually, but because they started young at a driving range, there wasn't courses really welcoming to get five, six, seven-year-olds straight out on the golf course because they were too long. So we set a nine-hole event up as part of the, the junior golf days that we did. But the, the main attraction would be nine-hole events off really short tees for juniors that weren't members of clubs and didn't have handicaps. Right? So you could just come and have a go at playing a short course in a competition format. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a game with your dad where your dad's playing 
and hitting it further than you. You're playing with kids that are just coming off the driving range, that are just learning the game. And that we put them all off playing off scratch, off tees that were just at the start of the fairways. And, and that went really, really good. From that, they, they would play our events. We would estimate a handicap for them. So when they wanted to move back onto red tees, they could do that. And then by that time, we maybe keep them for some of the kids that we've started that process with a few years ago are now playing 18 holes off red tees because they're a bit older. They're now old enough to get round 18 holes off red tees and they can hit far enough. Or they've moved from that further up to the yellow tees or the white tees. And, and, and it's given, I think, some young kids uh, an actual platform to start playing competitions. My son doesn't play golf, right? He's, he's into his football. But he, would, he didn't like playing golf with me. And I got that. I got that easily but on our first few. I couldn't do anything that would make him feel good about how he was hitting the ball. You know, even though he was hitting it well, and I could tell you that's a really good shot, mate. You hit it like 150 yards with your driver. What can I do to make him feel good? I can't top my driver along the floor to make that look, right? <laughs> like, there's, there's nothing I can do, is there? Other than him playing with people that are of his age and size and him realising that he can hit the ball as far as his mates, but he didn't have any mates that play golf. So we that's what I put him into these competitions and he would love just playing a competition. Never practices golf, doesn't really like golf. But if I say, do you want to go and play a competition? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. all right. <laughs> Weird, <laughs> isn't it? the competitive right? spirit, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, he's way more than me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's, he, but, but golf's not taken him really. I think he likes playing with his, with his friends at football and he's, he plays football now. So, and he's doing really well at that and he, and he is competitive. But you need friends to play golf with at an early age, don't you, basically? Yeah, you need to yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's so a that's beautiful re- The reason behind the junior tour is it. That, that's the reason behind it. And we've got a really good following on social media. All the, all the families get on really well. All the kids get on really well with each other. We compare anyone up with anyone. Occasion, occasional problems, but very, very, very rarely. It's a good, good bunch of people that we've got playing. Yeah, cool. Congrats on that and and best of Thank luck you. with that moving forward. It certainly sounds like it aligns with everything we know about how to be successful in getting somebody hooked in golf. So Yeah, we'll I think it, I think it's doing well. We're gonna keep there. it going. What's the next month look like for you? I, I imagine you're kicking off in Abu Dhabi, so you've got maybe five or six weeks left before you start. Yeah, I'm just gonna practice at home. Funnily enough, I've started uh, the Bryson effect has kicked in. Okay, good. Yeah, tell us yeah. about your, your uh, quest for distance here. My, my quest for distance, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I, I, start, I started to watch what was happening. I, I get on well with Bryson. I've, I've, I've met him a few times now, and I see him whenever he comes over the European tour. But what he's done the last year has just it's fascinated me. And I think I assumed straight away I'm too old to be doing that. So I just watched other people try and do it, and I thought it was quite funny. And I thought, well, you know what? For every one that tried well, for 10 people that try to hit it a lot further, one might get it. Right? A lot of people will ruin, ruin themselves doing it. And now here I am trying to, trying to do it. <laughs> Never learned here. Okay. So, so what, are the, uh, what are the methods, what are the tactics that you're deploying right now? And, and what's the target? What, how, the target do you have is, a, a club head speed or ball speed in mind? I think I'm hit. I have one in mind. I'm not getting there. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'd seem to... The funny part about being old, I, I, I can remember when I when I was a, a younger pro, I, I, I did hit it a decent way. I could hit over 300 yards and pretty straight. Uh, I don't know any of the details about my ball speed or club head speed at the time. I didn't keep any, um, and so I don't know what it would have been. But definitely for the last 10 years, I've been playing under my speed off the tee just to keep my swing in order, just through... I think rehearsing my swing so many times in slow motion, I think the overall swing speed has actually got closer to slow motion, which is a bit, <laughs> you know what I mean? You keep watching it in slow motion sometimes, then you actually play it back in real speed yeah. and you think, Jesus, mate, mm-hmm. come on. I've had, yeah, I've You've got to actually make the ball go that. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've always known that I've been playing a little bit under what I used to. So at a month before we played the two tournaments in Dubai, and I bought a GC quad. I've avoided Trackmans and all these things for the last eight years. One of my mistakes was buying a Trackman in 2012 when I was playing my very, very best, and it knocked me off. I couldn't not looking back. There was no way I wouldn't have wouldn't have bought one because it was the new thing. It was it was me wanting to learn more, and there's no way I couldn't have 
experimented with it so it was inevitable really but i wish i wish i hadn't but i bought a quad this time just for purely ball speed it's an expensive way of measuring ball speed but 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 i've had it in the because we've been on lockdown and i've been hitting into nets a lot i thought yes try and make that a little bit more fun because i just got bored and i got bored of videoing right i've done that so much that i'm bored of doing that i'm bored of videoing that's one of the parts that people don't really get. So if you're really trying to make swing changes and you haven't got the benefit of your coach standing behind you on every shot, video and every shot, telling you whether you're actually doing it or not, if you're doing it on your own, you've got a video almost every shot mm-hmm. right? to make sure you go in the right direction. I've lost mm-hmm. count of the amount of days where I've been smashing stuff up at home when I realized that I've spent all afternoon practicing something and I've got nowhere. Yeah, doing nothing. Right? Doing nothing. Just wasting my time. So anyway... So to make my practice a bit more fun, GC quad, and let's try and achieve some speed gains somehow. What's the personal best ball speed so far? 181. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah we we better not tell him else then, Corey. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> I started <laughs> yeah. it. With, funnily enough, I, I think my, I can easily swing at 160 and think I'm hitting it pretty close to full with the driver. And that's where I'll, but I've probably been playing most of my um, golf for the last 10 years. Maybe one, 165 would be where I'm playing. Right? And I just realized that there is a bit more there. And I took it as an experiment for playing in Dubai. Dubai is quite generous. It's not like playing yeah. in the UK with a bit of wind and trees everywhere. And in Dubai, if you had a, if you had a bad drive, right? If you, I don't know, if you send it 20, 30 yards offline, you'll find it, right? And it won't be that bad. So I thought it's a good opportunity to to see what I can get speed-wise and then can I actually, at 43, let myself loose on the first tee and do it right? and yeah, not just mindset. instantly slam the brakes back on and go to 165 and think, oh, yeah, yeah there's a bunker there, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> so for the first week, we just accepted I was going to hit it potentially anywhere and it was accuracy-wise, I don't think it was any different. So are you going driver length? Are you going lengthening the hand path and the swing? Are you going grand Normal driver course? length. Yeah. Mostly just pure effort. effort. Yeah, right. Yeah, just effort. And effort whilst the hard part for me hitting it hard is that I'm vulnerable in that change of direction still. Yeah. Right? Sure. That's your key move, isn't it? When you're trying to change your – if that's, that's the problem, I was, probably I didn't explain it as well as I would have liked to earlier – if you're naturally quite good at the change of direction line, hitting it hard probably isn't so much of a problem. But if you're trying to keep that under a certain guideline and trying to keep hit a certain spot, as soon as you start hitting hard, that new move for your start of your downswing has to become your power source somehow. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's really hard, isn't it? Right. There's a lot going on right. in that turnaround. And to hit the gas even harder than what you're accustomed to hitting, it throws off that time. Yeah, exactly. So... For me, it's difficult because I've got to try and keep the the start of the downswing line correct and where I'm happy with it so I know that I'm going to hit somewhat acceptable shot. Yeah, serviceable shot. (laughs) Whilst whilst going flat out. And and that's – I've been surprised, actually. I think I've maybe done – I don't think I could have done this five years ago. I think I would have still been vulnerable in that change of direction too much. I think maybe that I've done enough work over the last – I'd hope so. I couldn't – I can't imagine – actually of doing much more mm-hmm. so i think i've finally got to a point where i can hit it a bit harder coming down and not ruin the downswing basically. right right rocky you've been great with your time i want to close here with one final question and that being what advice would you give to the 15 16 17 year old version of yourself it would be something that i actually found out a little later on not not too much later on but when when i was that age and it's probably something that not my conf- not my confidence a little bit at that time, but the people I was playing against at that age were Luke Donald, Justin Rose, Paul Casey, Simon Dyson, just some really, really great players, right? but we were just in England, right? And I didn't know then that they were going to become some of the best players in the world, right? If I had, I would, might have been a little bit happier with where I was at. Sure. But I just thought, I can't even beat these guys. What chance have I got? <laughs> yeah we often talk about the benefit of those of being close to 
peers that kind of push you forward, but that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? If you don't realize that those guys are world-class and future world beaters, then no, uh, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know them that well. And I, and I had nothing or no one telling me, look, these guys are amazing. I wasn't in the England coaching setup. I wasn't in any of these squads. I just thought these are just the best few guys from down the road. Well, beautiful. Well, Robert, again, thanks for spending a bunch of time with us. Uh, we're looking Anytime, forward to, to golf kicking back up, and we're going to be cheering on you, cheering on the stable of players that you have. Thank and you. Best of luck in the new year, man. Thank you both very much. All best, mate. Okay. Cheers. We'll talk thanks. soon. Uh, see, you, yep. see you down the road. All right. Cheers. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.